Welcome to Humanitu. I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of this podcast series about humanness and creativity. Today I'm talking with Berhenda Williams once again. You might remember Berhenda from episode 20 of the podcast. In that conversation, we set aside what we thought we were going to talk about in order to address more pressing matters, like what at the time was the most recent police shooting of an unarmed black man, Jacob Blake. Now we've come back together to talk about Berhenda's story, how she shines light in the world, and what she's learning as she goes. Berhenda is an empathic coach and a facilitator, a bilingual poet and storyteller, and she is the founder of The Power of Girlhood, a leadership institute for teen girls in Metro Detroit. But first, a quick reminder. I often post on the Humanitu Instagram page, at Humanitu, using the hashtag, WeAreAllHumanitu. Because we are. We're all human, and we're all connected in this human experience. And exploring that connection and humanity, for me personally, and for us together, is what Humanitu is about. So, as we get into Brenda's stories and insights of her humanness and creativity, and as you listen to any episode of the Humanity Podcast, I encourage you to consider how you live humanness and creativity in your life. Or, put another way, since we're all Humanity, really consider for yourself, how are you Humanity? Now, Brenda, in this conversation, we talk about the power in one's name, like in the name Brenda. We talk about leadership and empathy spirituality, and the necessity of curiosity. Brehenna shares how she confronts FOMO, the fear of missing out, and the killer of joy that is comparison of self to others. She tells about the meaning of poetry in her life and of love as a path to shaking up the current system of political power. We get into the history of hip-hop music and its roots in Latin American and African rhythms. Along the way, I learned what the E stands for in the famous musician Sheila E.'s name. And that, as Brenda would somewhat emphatically clarify, Sheila E. is not just some prince protege. We also talk about the power of Eve Ensler's play, The Vagina Monologues, and why Brenda founded The Power of Girlhood, among other things. Here is my conversation with the self-described femolutionary, Brenda Williams. Berhenda, welcome back to Humanitu. Hey there, Adam. How are you? I am great. I'm great. And I want to ask how you are doing, and especially in light of the fact that recently, a couple of weekends ago, you uh, hosted International Day of the Girl, an event that I think has particular meaning to you and work that you do. How did that go? Wow. So, um, you know, obviously in the season of COVID, everything <laughs> is so different. So I think for me, the comparison is comparing it to something that well, we've been doing the event for like the last eight years. And so to see something that we've been doing in a live experience, then be reimagined in a virtual experience. I'm heavily critical, <laughs> I think, of my of myself, but I think most artists or creatives or creatives are. But I will say that it did feel really good to have the synergy of, of other uh, women, particularly Black women, and the acknowledgement of, of girls, and particularly girls of color, in this way, because the International Day of the Girl is sanctioned by the United Nations. And while every girl can celebrate it, I am keenly aware of the impact that it has on, on girls of color and 
being able to create a space where those voices and identities are centered, it does feel really good. When you say that it's sanctioned by the United Nations, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit more about that. What What is the connection there? Yeah. So the International Day of the Girl um, is a, a UN event that they have extended to the world. So anyone can independently organize an International Day of the Girl. And so what happens is there's like a toolkit and information that happens. And like I said, any girls group organizations, I believe the Girl Scouts of America uh, participates in it. Girls Inc. There are a lot of different organizations that, that participate in it. So what happens is you sort of register your name or your affiliation, share it with your community. Um, there's even opportunities. There were opportunities in the past to go to take a, a, a group of girls from uh, your area to the UN. But then again, like I said, when you talk about, you know, certain communities that are underrepresented or underserved financially, it can be, you know, a huge <laughs> um, undertaking yeah. to get to, to, yeah, to get to New York. However, any community can independently organize their, their own event. And there are some best practices to organize, you know, such an event because it is such a huge undertaking because in the physical space, what would happen There'd be a rally or there would be uh, a forum that included breakout sessions for girls. And that's traditionally the way that we've done it, where we have maybe two, three hundred girls from all across the metro Detroit area come to a, a college university. My alma mater was a host of it in past years. And what would happen is we would have girls be paired with adult um, facilitators to help them navigate the question. So anything from human trafficking to uh, gender-based discrimination in, in the form of education, stereotypes, right? Entrepreneurship, financial planning. So we would break the girls up into these groups with adult mentors, like I said, and they would come up with resolutions to, to these issues. And it was a really beautiful thing to see translated that way where the power and the, the decision-making was placed in the hands of those who are most affected, most affected by, you know, by affected by these areas. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And we're going to come back to uh, this conversation that has to do so much with uh, empowerment of girls. And of course, those girls become women out in the world. But I want to come back in the, right now in this moment to you mentioning Detroit. That is mm-hmm. where you live. That is where yeah. you grew up. And I'm interested in that city. I think that it has a compelling story. But I also think that a lot of people probably uh, suspect that it's prosperous days of things like being the Motor City, mm-hmm. being the home of Motown and Barry Gordy and, and all those things might be in the rear view. But I think also in recent years, while it's had those tremendous changes and those pains and challenges... I think it's also had a lot of creative renewal and that there's a lot of positive energy up there that maybe a lot of people are not hearing about. So I'd like to know how you see Detroit, see those challenges and those creative inspirations and that energy. Yeah. So it's so interesting, the complexity of even the Detroit identity. So for example, I live about 20 minutes outside of, of Detroit and grew up in a, in a town called Southfield, which is adjacent to Detroit. And while I was growing up, 
let's say I would spend, go to school in Southfield, but my grandparents on both sides of my family lived in Detroit, aunts, uncles, cousins, relatives. So I'd spend a lot of time summers in the city. So it was almost like I lived in two cities (laughs) at once. And so it provided though, I feel a dichotomy of seeing how prosperity and resources were allocated or not allocated just by having conversations with my cousins about like what their school experience was like versus what my school experience was like. And so I love your question because it's like, you know, is Detroit's, I guess, golden age or golden era in the rear view versus now? And I think that there is a struggle of two cities right now because there is gentrification that happens in many, many major cities. So Detroit, unfortunately, in that way, isn't unique. But there are people who are on the grassroots level who are doing amazing work for the city. Uh, my girls that I, I mentor and you know provide leadership development for live, many live in, in the city. So I think it's super important to make sure that people who are doing the work, living the work, breathing the work, have microphones, have platforms to speak about what what is happening and there are amazing artists who are here doing absolutely fantastic innovative uh work you know sydney james is a muralist she has an amazing mural which is her take of on the girl with the pearl earring it has a d earring um there are people like bryce detroit who are blending elements of consciousness and hip-hop and organizing together um there are Groups like Allied Media, for example, who has a huge conference that brings several thousand people into the city every year, who talk about equity and justice in the digital space, in creative spaces. So, yeah, there there is this sort of renaissance, yes, but then there's also um, a sense of people who are indigenous to the city who have been here for generations and and haven't left especially you know around the 80s when we may uh, post as you probably know historically many cities had um revolts or insurrections some people call them riots that depleted cities and so people moved to outskirt cities like southfield for example because of uh the rise and increase of unrest and and violence so it's it's an interesting story. I mean, that could be a whole conversation un, unto itself about how the city moves and operates. But I would invite anyone who is listening, you know, either from the Metro Detroit area or the nation to sort of pause and look at the the makeup of their own cities and in ways that, you know, gentrification participates in the decline of those who have always been there and have always taken care of their neighborhoods, their blocks, their their people, and how when we have these funds or programs that, that come in, making sure that the resources, the grants, the endowments, the infusion programs for, let's say, for example, minority businesses or for artists, making sure that if you sit on any of those kinds of committees and you're making decisions that you become more intimately connected 
with people in the neighborhood and in the in and in those cities so that the distribution of wealth is um it's equal yeah you know there's there's a lot like you're referring to there's a lot of depth uh of a conversation to be had around gentrification and i think that that's another issue in this country you and i had talked previously you know several episodes ago about some things um, socially and culturally going on in this country that have been going on a long time. And gentrification mm-hmm. is another one of those where we have, I think, very different perspectives depending on which slice of uh, this nation's population you're coming from. And I think for those who have privilege and those uh, areas of perspective, I'm aware that plenty of people think that, well, gentrification, of course, is good. It's going into neighborhoods that are, are kind of worn down and it's picking them up. But there's a lot more to it than that. There's a That's domino right. effect to how it impacts people and who it drives out and who it makes life uh, not better for. So I, I think it's a great a great topic to bring up. And we could be talking about that for a really long time as oh, well. Yes. <laughs> but I, I guess you're moving on from that because we've made the, the essence of the point and of people who are curious about it because this this brings to light some new line of thinking they had no idea. Hopefully they'll go Google or read some magazine articles or do something, do some homework. Yeah. Do a little bit of homework and talk to people. Cause I think that there's something so valuable in the lived experience that yes, we can, you know, read articles and maybe get some narrative from, from people. But I think that there's something so uniquely powerful when we go into our own communities and have conversations with, with individuals and, I would challenge, you know, those who are listening to this program. And I do feel like people that listen to your program anyway, do have a certain level of empathy and consciousness anyway, to tune into your, to your program, but to invite them into a deeper work in having conversations in, in these communities, because yeah, is it a tentious space? Yes. (laughs) And as a white passing person or a white person going into that space, um, is it always welcoming? It, It maybe not. But I still feel that, you know, points for bravery, right? And if we want to to really shift things, we do have to have courageous conversations. And we do have to enter it from a space of curiosity versus judgment. That's a great point. Thank you for adding that. I want to ask you now about your name, Berhenda, <laughs> recognizing that it means bare-hearted protector. Mm-hmm. And so my question on this is, is this the name that your parents gave you? with specific, you know, intentional uh, connection to that meaning, bare-hearted protector? Uh, or is this something that you have come to know maybe in later years and um, adapted in and adopted into your own understanding of yourself and the way you show up in the world? Yeah. So the name is like super interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it's a parent's name put together. Um, the hyphen is the only thing that I, that I own in, <laughs> in the name. But I think when you have a name that is as complex and heavy as mine, it does make you curious about it. And I do, you know, remember being younger and being teased about my name, you know, wanting or even putting on my paper, uh, Nicole, which is my middle name, uh, because that's more common. So there, you know, in schools, there's the, the Nicole, or at least when I was growing up, there was the Nicole, there were the Michelles, the Ashleys, the Tiffany's with a Y or an I or <laughs> <laughs> any kind of configuration of, of those kinds of names. And it just 
felt like um, an exclusion when you have a name like like mine and not feeling like you belong. And I mean, Berhenda does have a certain ethnic ring to it. <laughs> so identity, you know, is also wrapped very much so into a person's name. So as, yeah, as I gotten older, you know, I went on a, uh, an, uh, a pursuit of the etymology of, of my name. And I think it was around um, 20, my 20s, I think maybe the 21, I was in a Shakespeare class and my, my professor, who was a very curious fellow, was obsessed with, uh, <laughs> obsessed with, with Shakespeare and was the quintessential nutty professor. <laughs> and he just knew, <laughs> you know, you like, you know, you, know how you have those professors that just know everything. And I don't know how you get the universe in your head, but like, they just know everything. And he was one of those fellows that knew all about like, Descartes and Socrates on top of, you know, Shakespeare, I think spoke like five different languages, just really a, a learned um, man. Um, people skills were a little interesting, but <laughs> <laughs> he was definitely, um, you know, when I went to his uh, office for office hours, we kind of had this conversation about my name and even getting into his office, Adam, it was crazy because you couldn't get in. There were so many books, like literally he was barricaded in books and I was looking for him. So I wasn't sure what I was walking into, if I was going to end up in like Pan's Labyrinth or what was going on. <laughs> but I, w- I walked into his office and I thought he was there. But then it was like this other office that was just seriously like this filled with like these rare books. I'm sure artifacts. I don't know if the Ark of the Covenant was somewhere buried there too. <laughs> but he was like, oh, Brenda, <laughs> I'm here, dear girl. <laughs> and I'm like, seriously? And then here's this tiny man, this tiny framed you know, man, he had like this really kind of um, puffy white hair and, and bald in the middle. And he's sitting there and I'm like, does he have a pipe too? I mean, just like all of like, I guess, like the stereotypical uh, English professor <laughs> is was sitting there and he was like, do you know the meaning of your name? And I'm like, uh, not entirely. <laughs> no. And so he told me, um, you know, he asked me, was I uh, familiar with like any kind of Germanic or like Scandinavian mythology? Because the bear is a, is an animal that shows up quite a bit, quite a bit. And so I did some research and yeah, he was right. You know, the, the, the name coming from my, my mother, Bernadine, the feminine of Bernardo, which has root in the bear. And I looked at some of the mythologies and so the warriors before they went to battle in Germanic and sort of Scandinavian culture, before they would go to battle, they would put on bear skin or bear skirts and and in so doing, absorbing the energy or the power um, of the bear as they would go into battle. So I'm like, okay, that's interesting. And then my father, Henry or Henricus, um, Greek meaning hedge of protection. So when I looked at bear or the bear heart, the meaning of, of my mother's name and my father hedge of protection or protector, I said, Oh, okay. So I'm the bear hearted protector. Very, very. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) I'm like, that's, that's heavy. You know, that's a, that's kind of a, a, a weighted responsibility to, you know, be in a space of, of, of courage and also in the space of protection. Do you think that uh, in their names, so 
I, I get, you know, of course it makes sense. We got some names being passed down. That creates a lineage then mm. of these names and of the energy of these names. Mm. Because when I asked that question, actually what was in my head was, well, if your parents knowingly, intentionally gave you that name, you know, knowing what the meanings were, the history of that, then wow, that really speaks to something about who your parents are, what matters to them. I think the spirits of them. Mm-hmm. And while that still might be true, even though they they put these names together, maybe without knowledge of that lineage, now what I see is that line of energy and heart and protection and all these mm-hmm. things that are still being passed down to you, whether it was with full knowledge or not. Yeah. And so I wonder how you see yourself fitting in that line and and look at your parents and, you know, I, I just, I'm interested in the idea of the power of words, but the power of names. Yes. Oh my goodness. So, so super powerful. I mean, I think that, you know, we, we sometimes in our modern culture look for names that, you know, we'll look up the meaning of a name. Oh, that sounds cool. And then kind of bestow a child, you know, with the name without really spending time with it. And I would say that even though my parents maybe didn't understand the gravitas of, of the name when they gave it to me, they did spend time. And my mom did give me some um, honorable mention names as I, you know, through the years of what I was going to be named. But like if I had been born um, in a male identity, it would be Brandon. Some other girl names that they tossed around were Brandis. And I thought that those those names were cool. But I like my name. Like now knowing, like I'm, I'm really glad that they stuck with this name, this more unusual name. And when I think about the lineage from which I, I come from, I would say that they, they live out the, the virtues of their given name. And yeah, that lineage piece that you spoke of, I do believe I do carry, I'm, I am carrying it out. I mean, my grandfather's name was William Wallace for crying out loud. So, uh, wow, <laughs> right? Okay, <laughs> so, there's some history in that name. Yeah, right. And so, for a black man with a Scottish name, <laughs> I think that that it com- commands a certain amount of um, attention. But when we look at, of course, the the mythos of William Wallace, we do have a view of a of a man who stood for you know his convictions and died you know because of them and died a very dignified death and so not yeah. to like overly romanticize um you know dying especially in a way that is brutal and and heinous it still helps you when you know your name and what it what it means yeah yeah to to aspire toward a life that makes an, an, an impact for others. In the power that parents give a name or that a line of parents, grandparents, and so on, leading this name along me as a parent and giving names to my sons, mm. is there something in that that helps them uh, be inspired to fulfill this meaning, this story? You know, can it have that power? And so I'm wondering... In you having this name and you learning more about what is the meaning behind it, do you feel like that had any shaping role in how then you realized you wanted to show up in the world and put yourself out there and be this leader in this light and creative 
energy that you are in the world, or in fairness to all that you are, was that simply who you already were? So I, I think that um, it's an, it was an evolution. I knew, I would say I, leader is still a, a moniker that I sometimes kind of yeah, bristle <laughs> with mm. because I've always been more of a person. I just don't want to follow what everybody else is doing and definitely not always do what I'm told. <laughs> so there is a slight more rebellious nature, but I think through understanding my rebellious sort of anarchist <laughs> uh, being that that I I am, it it fostered leadership because people then take notice of what you're doing. Yeah, and you know, with a name like Brenda, does maybe make people curious. Like that's an interesting name. It definitely um, has let let lent itself to some conversation <laughs> about about the name and its origin. But I would say that over time, you know, as one ponders their own existence and, and questions, you know, sure. who am I and why am I here? Name is a great place to start. And so when you look at things like the Cavalarians, um, you can go decode your name. Uh, when you look at numerology and some of the other sort of um, studies or modalities that one can use to better understand who they are. I I think that you do start to look at your own internal soul's contract and and imprinting. And yeah, it can it definitely take you down a pathway. So I decided, you know, obviously as a person who's not a a, a follower, <laughs> well, if I'm not doing what everybody else is doing, then what do I want? What do I want to do? And um, coming from a social justice background, you know, my mother was a was a marcher and protester and actually helped integrate GM. Okay. In the 60s. Yeah. And my dad had an epiphany working on assembly. I, I'm, you know, I'm a product, as many people are, um, from my area of uh, the big three. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he decided that the assembly line for him is just not where he wanted to retire. So, you know, just even my, my dad's story is really compelling in that, you know, a black man from Southwest Detroit decided that he wanted more for himself, even after a guidance counselor told him he'd be lucky if he was a gym teacher. So what kind of constitution overrides, you know, sort of what one projects onto you and then obviously growing growing up, you know, becoming a man in probably one of the most turbulent times in American history of a revolution. Um, my oldest sister, is, he calls her um, his uh, revolutionary baby because she was born in the summer of 1967. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, well... You've got a number of thoughts going on for me right now, but I want to go back to the word leadership. Just to comment yeah. that for me, when I think of that word, I think of any of us and all of us can lead from where we are. I, I do not buy into just the top-down hierarchy. Let me get the rules and the knowledge from you, and then I have to follow that. Instead, I think being a leader also does not mean then that you have followers in an organized official sense per se but that when we think for ourselves, when we act independently, when we don't necessarily follow others, like you were just describing, the leadership inherent in that yeah. by walking our own lines and, and being leaders from where we are. 
but also you mentioned you mentioned revolutionary, and I know that you use the term femolutionary. Yeah. <laughs> to describe yourself. Yeah. So yeah, we could talk and talk and talk on all kinds of things, but I am going to move us forward into something else because I am curious about a number of things and I want to give you a chance to to share with us these pieces of yourself. And one of those has to do with your being bilingual, your studying Spanish. And you use it as a presenter, a poet, a mentor, a coach. And I'm curious what drew you to Spanish, to the, the, the language, I would imagine, to the culture. What is it that drew you there and what is its role in your life now? Wow. So, well, al principio quiero decir, español es un parte, un gran parte de mi alma y mi mente y mi corazón y todos los días yo puedo conectar a la gente o a la cultura uh, muy diferente que, que, que mío. Y entonces, um, para mí, una persona de color como yo, una persona afroamericana, es un parte de, un parte de África y también la gente eh, hispanohablante. Tenemos un, un sangre, un un alma y un corazón también conectado a África es muy importante para conectar en, en, en esta manera para seguir un poco más adelante en el, en el futuro, en un futuro común. So basically, it's important to me that being a person of color, being particularly an African-American, we're connected, Latino, especially uh Spanish-speaking um, Latinos, we we have a common heritage that I don't think we spend a lot of time on, and it's important that we engage our hearts, we engage the culture, we engage our spirits because of that. Essentially, that that commonality is what is is the gist of 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 what I said because we have a shared future, and in order to get there. We must understand, we must really implicitly like understand our our past. And it's funny that you bring that up because I remember keenly doing a lesson with students, particularly all African-American students around the connection. And so I had an, an African drumming ensemble come in and they play rhythm patterns from Latin America and play rhythm patterns from different parts of Africa to bring in so you could hear it. And then how it's evolved, these African drumming rhythm patterns into hip hop. And so we know that in the infancy of hip hop, African-Americans, people from the Caribbean and uh, people from Puerto Rico and uh, the Spanish speaking Caribbean were fundamental in the infancy of hip hop coming out of New York. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe Cool Herc has ties to the Caribbean, I believe Jamaica in terms of lineage. So it's really important to understand how these all these intricacies play together. We love, you know, seeing for example, Shakira, who's, you know, popular from, you know, in in Latin music, but the the rhythm pattern that she used the cumbia, the cumbia from Colombia, well actually from Mexico, but popularized in Colombia has rhythm patterns that you can trace back to Africa. So in this age that we're in of such divisiveness and separation for me, and I think it's always been a thing for me, what connects us, what brings us 
together. And so what does that impact look like when we unify, um, particularly in areas of health and education and community efforts? What does that look like when you can bring people together? And I think we've seen what that looks like when we have tuned into any of the demonstrations. We see that Black Lives Matter, though not a new concept nor a new movement, has galvanized because we see other people other than Black people marching in solidarity under the auspice of bringing humanity to Black bodies, to the Black identity. So I think that language has played such a uh, role for me because it does allow me an invitation into another community and another culture other than my own. And we can have some bridging conversations. That was a wonderful explanation and a reminder of, of the threads and the connections that uh, go across cultures, go throughout time. And a lot of this stuff that we, I think um, a lot of us are one, just plain ignorant of, Mm -hmm. unaware of, especially in, I would say white America where that's not, um, well, as we know, a lot of things are not in the history books no. that many of us were handed at school. And so through Humanitu and the conversations I'm having, it's such, I, I'm so honored to have the opportunities to learn of some of these things, to learn more and more of histories that I have not been taught as a kid mm-hmm. and have, and, and, and so it's a constant development of my own learning and understanding to now you're giving me more hints of some of the connections that I need to go to. I was not aware necessarily of some of the influences that date so far back that lead to hip hop. Um, mm. <laughs> I do remember, I know that cool Herc, I think Jamaica is right. Mm. Please don't quote me or, or, or someone. Well, can, I'm sure people think, would like <laughs> send something in the note. Like uh, when she said Jamaica, that, that might be in, incorrect. Um, Cause it's been, been a little while since I did some research on him. Well, I'll stand there with you, though, because that was the, the name of the country that came to my mind before you said it. Okay. Um, so I think I think we might be okay. Okay. But, um, <laughs> yeah, nobody quote us until until we know for sure. So we know for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and back to what you were saying in Spanish, wow, that was beautiful. And there was only so much of that that I could pull out with my now about 30-year-old high school Spanish. <laughs> but, um, but I could pull out a good amount of it and I could hear about, you know, the heart and, and all these, these connections you were making into Africa. So thanks for that demonstration. That was amazing. Mm-hmm. But I also want to say that you taught high school Spanish. I did. And so when it, it was actually there that when you were teaching that, I think you saw this need for the girls in particular that were in your classes right. and that's where then this is leading us to you founding this leadership organization, The Power of Girlhood. Yeah. And I want to hear more about that. Now we've circled back. This this ties into the International Day of the Girl that we mm-hmm. started off this conversation with. So sure. now we're back. We've circled around. Mm-hmm. Please tell me about this passion that is The Power of Girlhood. Yes. Yeah, so I was teaching 10th grade Spanish, and that's when the idea or the necessity sparked was when I was working with our girls. On a day that was, or a week rather, that we had off of traditional academics called intercession. And during this time period, 
we were able to work on sort of maybe like soccer skills and work on social emotional development of our students. And the power of girlhood really came out of just listening to what, what girls were saying about their needs and their aspirations. And, and that really started the program that is now evolved into a leadership institute for, for girls. So just listening to them. And then it evolved me also out of the classroom. But it, it's like everything that I've done birthed something else. So poetry, being bilingual, you know, helped to create a foundation for the power of girlhood. The power of girlhood led me into deeper awareness and empathy and realizing that I'm an empath, which has now led me to the work that I'm doing with visionary empaths. And even that work is evolving because as I witness the landscape of our world and where we are, it's, it's, it's very, it's become very apparent to me that yes, we also need to duly uplift the feminine and, and also encourage men to tap into their feminine so that we can create a world that does work for all and taking those gifts. And those are some of the things that I talk about with, with my girls in the leadership containers about what are your gifts, honoring your intuition, honoring, you know, your emotions. And obviously I deal with an age group that can be <laughs> very emotional, but they're navigating so much when you sprinkle hormones into that, they're navigating, <laughs> <laughs> they're navigating, navigating a lot. And I, I am hoping and endeavoring in the work because a lot of times when I'm working with adult women and working with the girls, there's so many parallels between the emotional states and brainwashing or programming about who we are. So it's like when I'm working with adult women, we're having to undo some of the programming around that enoughness, the imposter syndrome that comes in and not trusting your, your intuition and redefining what success is because many of my clients are maybe coming out of higher education or coming out of corporate environments where the, the structure is very masculine, then conversely working with the girls who are kind of going through and helping them to hold on to what the older women are trying to get back to. You're not crazy. <laughs> You're fine. The world is crazy. You're fine. In many instances, I feel like we just need to give the reins of power and leadership over to nine-year-old girls because they seem to be far more mature um, in many cases. <laughs> than some of the adults who are running things. And I think the message you are fine is something that we all need to hear, all need to remember and reconnect with and not in some cases, uh, again, thinking of a lot of the, the patriarchal leadership of, of all things is acting out as if they're not acting out against that. There, there's some, like there's a deep seated fear thing going on there because we lose this connection with, we're fine. We're fine as who we are. And you mentioned men also needing to connect with that feminine aspect of themselves. I talk about those things from time to time here. We need more of that. We, we are all yes. taking things that we have been fed. Mm -hmm. And I feel like now in light of a whole lot of what's going on in the world, especially as we are feeling it here in our country as such extreme change um, for some of us waking up some of us, I realize for some people that this also, a lot of the pains and horrors going on are very long standing. Mm -hmm. 
They are. However, I think we all in this period, one of the positives we can do is wake up, reconsider some things, reconsider ourselves, maybe yeah. more than anything, and how we come to connection with ourselves and with others. Mm. It's, we, um, yeah, again, you're, you're touching on so many things that I feel like we could go down so many lanes. <laughs> but if, if I try to keep us somewhat focused here within the idea of what you're saying about what you're teaching and, and mentoring with these girls and the power of girlhood, mm-hmm. it, it, of course, you know, it, I suppose it should be obvious to people, but I, I would identify as a heterosis male. I don't know the experience of growing up as a girl. Sometimes I'll be watching something on Netflix with my wife, Becca, that pertains to those years of life um, for girls. And I'll look to her and say, was that your experience? Like, is it, this is, this is knowledge to me, right? Mm, so I try mm-hmm. to check it with the best and closest voice I have being my wife's. And so I want to ask you though, about your experience as a girl, the ages of this 13 to 18 segment that you especially talk with through the power of girlhood. I'm wondering what you felt in that time, the things that you might call back to in your mind now and be like, yeah, I wish I'd have had this kind of mentoring or leadership or not to put that on you. Did you feel like you got that from somewhere, from your mother, from whoever else might've been around you? And really now you're sharing forward this strength and value for these girls. Yeah. So I I think that when I look back over that time period, like many girls, you can have the best immediate examples or not, (laughs) uh, but still aspire to want more, more permissions, more expressions of of identity and in being and, you know, not. I mean, obviously, when we say girl, we're speaking of a binary expression of the feminine. But I think even within that, there's so many expressions. So, like, for example, when we were in person, we would have opportunities for a girl of the month. And instead of presenting them with a a tiara or something pink, we would present them with a scepter and tiara or there's a this craze with the the younger ones with uh, manga, which is kind of like a branch of anime. Okay. So I had like these fuzzy ears that were that many of the cartoons would would have, or a pirate patch. And not that, of course, I could suit every single identity, but I did want to disrupt the the ideology that because it's a girl, it has to be pink. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for me, growing up, seeing you know, there were 17 magazine, but it was mostly white girls with blonde hair, five, seven. And that's something that I, I mean, genetically, that's impossible <laughs> for me to, to become. And, you know, the versions of, of black girls were usually girls that appeared to be maybe multiracial with a hair texture that looked nothing like mine. Again, five, seven, slim. It was a vert that I could genetically, I couldn't aspire to. And just even equating one's physicality with, with their worth, again, needs to be disrupted. So one of my favorite books I, I really enjoy is The Body is Not an Apology, that journey, a deeper journey into um, self-love. 
and the movement that I see now with like Lizzo and some some others around body positivity, that there is no singular way to be a girl, I think is super important. So to answer your question, I don't know that I always saw it. I mean, I had a grandmother that, you know, was a nurse in 1942 from the very segregated South. So I think I had <laughs> um, role models, but still when you're in that tender process, I mean, your parents are always going to tell you you're smart, you're beautiful, and you need a validation that comes, it has to come from inside. And sometimes the external or the immediate external validation um, that you're looking for, you want it to come from peers or come from a version of your future self that validates you. Yeah. I think when we're in school, when we're in those ages and we're in school, our daily life, our our many hours during the day that is spent surrounded by that social pressure, the negatives, the positives, whatever is coming there, right? That's somehow we end up ignoring that our parents say, Hey, we love you. You're great. You're mm-hmm. capable, all these great things. And it's the kids at school who also don't know anything. They also don't have clear identity within themselves and the clear mm-hmm. strength and confidence. And, and that's who we get lost in, in listening to and kind of, kind of lose our way a bit. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we spend our adult lives (laughs) trying to, I think, untangle a lot of that and and come (laughs) to a place of confidence and and self-love. Yeah. Therapy Um, by 30. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk with you about your poetry now. Mm -hmm. You have described it as a lens that you use to explain your existence. I imagine to work through some of these things we were just saying. The challenges in life within yourself, mm-hmm. emotions, find some catharsis. So tell me about your poetry and what it means to you. What, like, is this a daily thing? Is this, what, well, what is it? What is it in your life? Ooh, so many things. But I would say, first and foremost, um, sacred art, sacred practice. I need it. It's the only way that I can make sense of, of things and, process. And it's curious because there's so much that's going on in the world. But I find that most often I always go back to writing love poems. So it's like all hell is breaking loose out in the world, but I write, (laughs) I write love poetry. And I used to beat myself up um, about that. Like I should be writing about what's happening in the current events and what's happening. And because I have such a kinship, to spirit, God, universe, what source, whatever you want to put on it. I use God and God spoke to me and said, but you're doing it. So, you know, you're not writing poems about it. You're writing poems about love and what better way to shake up a system than to introduce love and passion and connection and intimacy. What better way to disrupt the system that's currently in power? You touched on something there for me. Because, again, with so much chaos and things in the world, so many things that have intensified and come to a head all together right now, I I tend to think, so I write poetry, I create in various ways, and mm. then there's this, this thing, Humanity, as a podcast, and sometimes I look at myself, you know, at, at these things I'm doing with the exact same kind of question you just mentioned, and that is, well you know, I should be speaking out. I should be getting involved in politics. I should be doing these 
things mm-hmm. that are um, justifiably passionate and enraged. Yeah. And instead, I'm here doing these things that I, I've sort of judged myself as, well, this must be part of my privilege that I get to step away from that and stay on the, the I guess, the love side of it. I mean, to go ahead with that word, the positivity, instead of getting angry and doing this or that, I'm staying on what feels like a more gentle and soft side. And and I have that same question with myself, Mm -hmm. right? And and when you brought up your love poetry and that you question yourself, here here's the funny thing, right? I have the exact same questions, but because I'm outside of you and I can objectively respond to your having that question about yourself, I can say, no, but love is exactly what the world needs. (laughs) <laughs> and that was exactly my response back to you. Like, you know, Deepa Iyer has a really great um, framework for social justice and equity work. And there are the visionaries, the storytellers, like people like yourself, people like me. And then there are the more aggressive, agitative participants. And that's needed too. That's necessary too. And if we didn't have programs like yours, then how will we be reminded of what it is that the politicians and those who are in those sort of political spaces, then how will we be reminded of what we're doing this for? If we don't have love, if we don't have community, if we don't have connection, if we don't see the light, then how do we move the darkness? Wow. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, for the support there. I'm glad we could we could share in that mutually uh, sustaining sort of moment because uh, you know sometimes it's really easy as a creator to get lost in thinking I'm the only one fighting these battles you know within myself. Oh yeah. But really, it's 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 everybody else who is that empath, who is that communicator, the thinker, the feeler, the the creator. We're all going mm-hmm. through it. So yeah. thank you for this this community as, as we talk this out. I want to come back to your poetry in in this way. Because I think you have talked before about in your history with it, that as a girl in school, that you would engage in ciphers with the boys. Which, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, talking about talking about hip hop, the history of that, that's just one more place out of, I don't know, almost all of them where it's male dominated, historically has been. Yeah. So for you as a girl to go toe to toe with these boys in... I mean, would you describe them as freestyle battles or how, what was the experience that you were having in those ciphers then? Well, more like a disruption to second hour science classes, <laughs> what, what they were. And I don't know that my um, teacher <laughs> would have considered it um, particularly um, beneficial or dare I say, um, not disrespectful, but <laughs> um well, I look back, you know, on it, like I said, being seventh grade Spanish, which would, you know, definitely dating myself, would put me in the 90s. You didn't see a lot of, and you still don't see a lot of women in hip hop. And at the time, sure, you know, you'll have your salt and pepper and you had Yo-Yo and Queen Latifah and MC Light and Moni Love. And as I'm naming them off, I'm still on one hand. Whereas if I started naming up all the male rappers, I would quickly run out of hands to to name. And the the differences that existed, because it wasn't all just, you know, gangster rap. You know, you had conscious rappers and, you know, you had your public enemies, KRS-One, who were more on the conscious side of things. But, you know, still very limited in terms of the voices of, of women in hip hop. 
And even now we have, you know, Indian women who are engaging in hip hop and it's gotten really global in terms of its participation of hip hop. So being a, a disruption in and of itself, I didn't realize then like how much I'm disrupting because I'm in a circle of boys who are, you know, rapping even in their subject matter about cars and clothes and things they don't have. Cause I mean, in seventh grade, what money you don't have any money, you have your parents money, but you don't have anything. So to hear about, you know, again, more a masculine sort of bravado. It was interesting that what I wanted, the subjects that I wanted to, to take on in, in, in said rap battles, it was very interesting and evolving more into to poetry as an adult. I just think it's super important that, you know, the art continue to um, evolve. And yeah, we need more feminine voices. And as we evolve more non-binary voices in, into woven into the artistic expression freely. And I think that that does, it helps lend to our, our growth as human beings when we can hear the diversity and expression in, in the art form. So yeah, I was, um, <laughs> again, more rebellious because the boys were doing it and girls weren't allowed in. That just <laughs> pushed me to want to, I was going to jump in. <laughs> did they accept that? Did they, did they like what they were hearing? And they're like, you. Yeah, you know, I was, um, back in the day, I was kind of sweet. So it was, it was okay. But I think again, it, it I, it was not apparent to me again, cause I didn't see it or even really realizing it. But yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't get booed. Um, <laughs> the flow, the flow was pretty, was pretty sick. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, you know, so as much as, you know, a seventh grade boy <laughs> is going to allow you to participate. Yeah. There was a participation and, you know, beats made on the table. So I would, as a teacher, slowly, it, it, it would depend on the, you know, the beat. Cause I mean, nothing changes, you know, boys still beat on the table, make beats with pencils. And unless it was, you know, structured in a way, I mean, we could do it for doing the uh, alphabet. So I would teach the, um, and I would teach the alphabet. I would ask for a beat because they would do it all hour anyway. So I'm like, you know, save it for when we do the alphabet. So uh. either in opening or closing, you know, we'd have the boys on the table or we would have girls. Um, I remember having a, a young, young lady student who was um, a drummer. And so I called her baby Sheila E. She was amazing. So you know, <laughs> we would have, like, if you're going to do this, it would structure it. So we would structure um, ciphers or battles in the classroom. So instead of, you know, always going against the current, sometimes, you know, you need to flow with it. That sounds good. That yeah. sounds like a really creative, constructive way to go. I'm sure that was, that, that definitely was beneficial in the classroom. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if that girl who, uh, who you you referred to as what baby Sheila E? Baby did she know who Sheila? She did she know who Sheila E is? Was yeah, she had a frame of reference. Actually, when we did our uh, one of our our culminating activities, they had to pick a famous Latino person to do research on, and she did do some. She she dove into Sheila E, who um, is a renowned percussionist. Um, uh, in her in her own right, she's the daughter of Pete Escovedo, so that's where the E um, comes okay. from. Yeah, so and who is a, a phenomenal jazz percussionist 
who's you know been on stages with Santana, um, finding an all star. So people who who know know. So Sheila E, you know, is is not just a prince protege, <laughs> but okay, an outstanding uh, musician and singer. Um, you know, in in her own right. Prince, of course, is who I immediately make that connection with. Yeah, so. most people. Yeah, most people do. But but Sheila E can can stand and did stand on on her own <laughs> and probably taught Prince a thing or two about a thing or two. Yeah, because yeah. like I said, her father Pete Escovedo um, is a renowned jazz percussion, Latin jazz uh, percussionist, and um, you can pull him up on YouTube. You'll probably go down a rabbit hole because he's absolutely ama- amazing, and she can yeah she can stand on her own. Well, that's some good history lesson there for me too. <laughs> Adding on to what what I thought I knew, what I did know, now I know more. <laughs> yeah. I want to take this uh, kind of the performing thing for you. Let's let's go to another step here. The vagina monologues. That is something that you performed as well, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So this is for anyone who hasn't heard of this famous uh, uh, play, one woman show, the monologues. Uh, Eve Ensler, who I think goes by V now, the the letter. I want to tell you before we circle back, I want to hear about your experience with this, but I want to tell you that this is something that is an example of my lifelong curiosity here, I think, because I have experience with this show. About 20 years ago, I was in the army. I was a single guy living in uh, Maryland, so near DC. And I bought a ticket and I went to see Eve Ensler perform this, uh, one woman show. And, you know, it wasn't like one of those situations where I had a, I didn't have a date. I didn't have a girlfriend, you know, one of those things where, oh, they must've dragged you here. Like, no, I'm, I'm curious. Mm -hmm. And because I'm hazy on the details of what Mm -hmm. I saw there, but I do know that it was vulnerable, uh, somewhat raw, empowering. And I just, I, I can't imagine being in your shoes performing this, standing on this stage alone to do this. And I'm curious about that experience for you. Where was this? When was it? And what, what brought you to it? And, and, you know, how did it feel to, to do that? Wow. Yeah. So powerful. I mean, I think I I first saw it on, on HBO and definitely, you know, I love that you were curious enough to go without dating or just, you know, just wanting just for your own edification to, you know, have a deeper understanding of what it's like, you know, to, to inhabit or, you know, be, uh, be a woman. And I was really riveted by it. I was really touched by the last monologue, which was, um, I was in the room, which I, if you have not seen it, she talks about her witnessing, I believe it was her sister, give birth. And, you know, Adam, as a, as a parent, I'm only assuming that you were there at at least yeah. one, one birth. <laughs> yep, yep. No, both of them. Yeah. I had two uh, boys. Two boys. I, I, I'm, I'm assuming that it was very emotional for, for you to watch, you know, this body of a woman that, that you love transform into um, a vessel to house life and then to release this life. That I mean, I I don't have biological children, so I can't even put into words or even fully understand what what that's like. But I'm sure that had to be very emotional for you to to watch, you know, this person that you love give birth to, you know, someone that you without knowing 
are in love with <laughs> to, to watch. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's a life-changing experience for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I was really taken by the way she captured uh, the story and have been in a couple of productions of the model. And, it, and, it, and it's nuanceable, right? Because, you know, I've been in mixed race casts for it. I've been in an all black cast of it. So it's interesting to see how each person brings their identity to these monologues. And I think it's really beautiful to see when you, again, the connections, because it's it's told from all different perspectives, from, you know, obviously from a heterosexual perspective to a lesbian perspective to old, multi-generational, young, all of these perspectives. And I think that, you know, folks like V, also known as Eve, you know, you, Krista Tippett, people who are conveners of stories help move our humanity forward. So perhaps now listening to this, people become more curious, hopefully more more male um, identified folk <laughs> become more inquisitive about this so that we understand the heinous nature that has violated, raped, pillaged the feminine body, both physically, spiritually, emotionally, and the necessity for us to become more intimately, not just acquainted with the vagina, like in its body part, but its capability of really, without it, your sons wouldn't be here, I wouldn't be here, you wouldn't be here, you know? And so I think that her taking on the subject matter in such a courageous way, and, you know, I think some 20 years later, um, obviously it's, it's not new, but still it being thought-provoking and evocative, you know, is a testament to the work. Like I said, I saw Eve do the whole show herself. Yeah. So to hear you describe the way that that has rippled out in the world and it's been done in all these other ways with, uh, like you said, different casts, different ages, different races, all these things that that diversity of uh, mm-hmm. of conduit of that mm-hmm. show that that mm-hmm. that's amazing that takes it to another level that's so it, it also speaks i think quite a bit to why 20 years later this still goes on and of course you know it's it's stuff that is kind of timeless as well because it speaks to the history of of beings of the feminine mm-hmm. um yeah that's amazing and i think it's it's so courageous for you to step into the, that light and into that that expression mhm yeah, yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you about imposter syndrome. You mentioned the term a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. It's something that is, it pertains to comparison. I think sometimes, a lot of times, creative folks, we end up, I certainly do, in this not necessarily a positive cycle of when we're doing something and comparing to where we think we should be or who we think we should be. And imposter syndrome is a recurring topic with folks here on. Humanitude, because I do talk with a lot of people who are creators in all kinds of ways. You have described comparison as the killer of joy. Yes. And so I want to know what you've learned about your, through your experience with comparison and, you know, what you've learned about how not to let that kill your joy, how not to let that be self-defeating in your creative expression in the world. Yeah. So one of the things, I mean, I think it's, super easy, especially in our world now where we have like social media. So you can up to the minute, I guess, see what other people are doing or, you know, not doing or 
whatever. <laughs> and, and like FOMO or fear of missing out, like that's a real thing. Like it's a, it's a, it's a legit thing that um, even psychologists and therapists are, you know, dealing with when they see clients. And I, I think for me to help me get out of the loop or before I even kind of go down that pathway, I have to stop and look at my own accomplishments and my own timeline of when I've started something, ended something, what support mechanisms I've had or not had. I mean, when we look at, I think the easiest on a superficial level is to look at a celebrity who, you know, has a baby and then less than six months, they're, they're back in shape. Well, yeah, I'm sure if you had a personal chef and two nannies and a personal trainer, uh, yeah, and can afford, you know, to eat all organic. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure your body would snap back in place. And also, you know, uh, a sure a roller decks of plastic surgeons to nip and tuck you. Yeah, you would look perfect. <laughs> you would look perfect, too. So that, you know, even in that description, though, a superficial description lets you know that there one, there are certain things that are accessible and it you have to also look at genetics. So it's, it's, it's super easy to look at something, to look at an Instagram post, to look at, you know, something that comes out about someone winning something or they see something. You have to run your own race. And it's really helpful to take Facebook or any of the social media, like off your phone and really engage in your own work and engage in your own process. And you know, like I shared before, you know, on, the, on, on our previous interview about spirituality of becoming mindful and becoming curious that things do start to respond, you know, to you. And these are some of the things that I deal with, even with my own, you know, in myself. And I deal a lot with, with my, with my clients, you know, feeling like you're not doing enough and being enough. And it can feel like you're drowning in two feet of water. So I have to encourage, you know, my clients to stand up (laughs) in the water to to stop the, the drowning. But again, that is a hugely um, common place to navigate is the imposter. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of where now this is, this comes from my aspirational sort of um, spiritual practices, self-love, self-practices. It's not something I always am great at and remember as much as I should, but to just come back to that place of love and connection within ourselves. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the idea of this, we're, we're each running our own race. And, you know, so, okay, I've mentioned I have two sons and they're eight and they're 10 and everything is a competition to them. Even the most nonsensical things that in no way do we have to put that stress on and, you know, cause they'll end up arguing about it and there'll just be this ripple effect of, of, you know, anxiety and stress and, and upsetness in the house. And so the way I've often taken to, uh, kind of quell that is, to say, no, 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 wait a second. You each one in your own age category, um, you know, because they're in their own race. You don't have to compare everything, but it's amazing that mm-hmm. that's exactly what we continue to do well throughout our lives. Yeah. So self-care, self-love. Mm-hmm. I want to know about how you tap into that within yourself, not necessarily related to the comparison or, or imposter syndrome as a general question. How do you reconnect with your spirit? Mm. Yeah. Such a great question. And yeah, I love your insights and like, yeah, the, the description you gave with your boys that, yeah, sometimes I just think it's almost like just inherent in our culture to always want to compete. And we don't necessarily live in a collaborative culture. So to answer your question for 
for Brenda, I go back to my spirituality, my connection with God, and remember that that's the essence in which I come out of. And in that realm, there is no competition. There is no lack. There is no limitation. There is no not enoughness. You know, when you think about the universe and its vastness and how it, the seasons change in the perfect time and how, you know, animals don't seem to be concerned about how they're going to eat, what they're going to eat. I believe that our creator cares, cares for us <laughs> in, in a way that provisions will be made. And so I, I try to leave myself open for the miraculous and the unpredictable, because I believe that even at our worst, right, that that's where God really comes in and shows up and shows out. And so when we look at sacred texts, you know, like the Bible or the, the Bodhisattvas or the Quran, we see that in these um, seemingly very dark hours in the black church, we have this saying that um, Jesus was in the fiery furnace because they said that um, when the brothers were put in the furnace, was that Ashak, Meshach, and Abednego and a bad Negro (laughs) were in the the fire. And so when you go through the fires of life, like you will be in the fiery furnace or in the den, like Daniel and the lion's mouth, it's like that 11th hour is when something bigger than yourself can come in and, and take you and elevate you, save you. And so it's just being constantly aware and you're not always going to be constantly aware. Life happens. You know, we're, we're eating food with all these GMOs in it. So God knows what it's doing, <laughs> you know, to our bodies. You know, they're food deserts and, you know, clean water, right? We have all, all of these things, but it's coming back to, you know, snatching, getting your mind back, you know, getting grounded in some sort of practice, whether it's in the morning, a meditation. I set a timer midday. Because life does does come in, and like I said, at the rate of the black bodies that we have seen dropping in the police brutality, it can be very disheartening and lead you down to a road of of despair. But we have to remember, and then that, of course, that competition. Well, you know, all of these things are happening, but on the flip side, like you see other people that seem like they're winning, we don't know. We we see we're seeing their highlights, but not necessarily the bloopers. We don't see the, the, the struggle. We don't see the, the turmoil. We don't see those parts of things. Things are very carefully curated to speak to whatever narrative a person wants to, to push or share. So right. having your own spiritual practice is super important. Yeah, I, I think that that starts with a breath. Yep. Just step Ooh. back, slow down, and take one take breath. one breath. Yep. And let that lead to the next and the next, right? So mm-hmm. I want to, before we get to the final question, I want to let you know that I did quickly fact check our DJ Cool Herc. I Where is too. he from? Need, yeah, oh, Jamaica. We got it. That's right. <laughs> Kingston. Okay. That's right. We got it. All right. Kingston, Jamaica. Okay. The final question. I think we've only really scratch the surface on any number of topics. Like we said throughout, oh, we could go on that for a while. But let's boil down this hour plus into how we look at what your humanness and creativity, which is what humanity is about, is the focus. Mm -hmm. What is most meaningful to you about you and about maybe about how you view yourself, the world, and then engage with it? 
Wow, that's such a good question. I think, again, my engagement with the world around me is moving with a sense of curiosity. I'm so curious about how things work together. I'm so curious about how people come together, what they think, what they believe, how they believe. I sometimes find myself like, I don't know why, for for a stretch, I was like obsessed with like Ted Bundy and um, Charles Manson. And not that, no, I don't want to be a serial killer. (laughs) But I was just curious, like, how does one become a serial killer? Like, what was, what was, again, family pathos? So like, what, where, what was their origin story? Where was that rising action? What was it? Was there a point of, of no return that they hit a, 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 a stride, if you will, that led them down? Did they want to turn back at, at, at any point? Was there anything that intervened or intercepted? Was there a spiritual, you know, practice that they had or didn't have? Charles Manson actually memorized the book of Revelation. So clearly, you know, <laughs> there was something there, but still, you know, there was this pathway that, you know, he, he chose to go down and a very bloody one that left a, a, a wake of devastation and, you know, pain and had, you know, become so culturally significant that I think as a culture, we, we've become, you know, obsessed with him and Dahmer and like, you know, different ones. So I think for me, uh, it's, it's just being curious about how things come together. And then when we look at the paradigm that we're currently in and, and, and I feel like that my, my work working with empathic women and working with visionaries, it, it heals me. So just even doing the work is ministry unto itself because I get fed back so much. And I'm so grateful for the insights that, that they come up with and that they come to. So yeah, I lead with curiosity and then doing the work. Curiosity. I noticed it came up a number of times in the conversation. It came up in our previous uh, conversation several episodes ago. It's massive in my life. And I think doing that work, the things that you say that you're doing that also heal you, I think that might be the best of what we can do, especially in times right now that we feel we could otherwise feel despair Mm -hmm. and, and feel the weight of it even more than we already do. Take that one step. And let that ripple be that mm-hmm. positive light. And Brenda, you, you do that in so many ways. And I'm so glad that we at least got to touch on a number of those things. Now there's so much more to your story. I certainly in show notes on the website will encourage people to go to your sites and learn more about what you're doing. You have a new website. I that's do. beautiful. <laughs> Thank so you. <laughs> I'm going to direct people to that. You do amazing things in the world. Thank you for talking with me for Humanitu once again. Oh, thank you so much, Adam. And thank you for this space that you have so um, thoughtfully and lovingly curated. So thank you for what you do. That was Brahenda Williams, empathic coach, poet, and founder of The Power of Girlhood in today's Humanity Conversation of Humanness and Creativity. You can learn more about Brahenda in the show notes published on our website at humanity.com. If you appreciate what you have just listened to, consider these three ways that you can help humanity continue to inspire a more thoughtful, curious, and creative world. One, rating this podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and on other players helps the digital algorithms know what's worth promoting. Two, spread the word about this podcast on your social media pages and by old-fashioned telling your family and your friends.
3. You can give a buck to sustain Humanitu by going to the support page on the website, Humanitu.com. Because again, together we can cultivate a more thoughtful, kind, and creative world. I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of the Humanitu Podcast. Thanks for being here. Escovedo. <laughs>